All right, well, good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to be in the end of chapter 5, and we're going to go through 612 this morning. Hebrews chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, do praise you because you give us your love that's most powerfully reflected and represented in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you gave Jesus so that we might have eternal life. Father, we pray now as we study your, your word that you would give us wisdom. Father, it's a difficult, convicting, and challenging passage this morning, hard to understand and uh, perhaps even harder to obey. So, Father, we pray, give us wisdom. Help us understand with our minds. I pray, make us alert and uh, make us open to your Spirit's movement. Father, I pray, allow us to believe what your Word says. Um, I pray that you would empower us then to obey. I pray that my words would be what you would have me to say. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to pose a hypothetical situation to you for just a minute. Imagine that uh, we get to talking after the service today and I say, why don't we spend the rest of the afternoon together? I'd like to get to know you better. Come hang out with me. And so uh, we leave and the first place we go, I say, I got to take you to my favorite place. And so just imagine we go to Chuck E. Cheese. All right, we go around the corner and uh, we pull up. Somebody really likes it. Great. We pull up at Chuck E. Cheese and uh, sit down and man, I just load up with pizza and I pour uh, chocolate syrup all over my pizza and I'm just eating it and uh, you're watching me eat and I'm getting a sugar buzz as we're going and you're thinking that's a little strange you know not a lot of people eat that way but whatever you know so I get my sugar high and I say let's go we stand up 
walk over to the animatronic shows that are going on and I just dump quarter after quarter after quarter into this thing and just watch it and I clap and I dance and I applaud and uh, we watch it eight or ten times. We go back to my house and I say, all right, let's go back, sit down in my living room and I say, I'm going to let you play my favorite game. So we sit down and we play Candyland about eight times, right? And you go, man, I, I, okay, I don't, haven't played Candyland since I was a kid, but we finished playing Candyland. We walk outside, we swing in the backyard on my jungle gym for a little while, come in, we have a snack, fruit roll-ups and Capri Sun, right? My favorite, all right? We take a little nap and we get up, we go get Happy Meals for dinner and I argue with you about the toy for a while. I want to trade my toy for yours and I like it better and then I send you home. Now, what would you think after an afternoon like that with me? you think this guy's acting like a six-year-old, right? He never grew up. Something short-circuited in the process from being a child to being an adult with him. Because the natural process of your growth is that you progress toward maturity. You leave behind childish things and you press on toward adult things. That's the normal process of our lives. And so if you see a 35-year-old guy, a 40-year-old guy living like a child, it gives you pause. It makes you think, what happened to him or to her that this person never grew up? Now, as we progress in our spiritual life as well, we're intended to progress toward maturity. And if you've been a Christian for 15 or 20 years and your spiritual life really is no more mature or filled with depth and love for God and love for his word and understanding of it than it was when you first became a Christian, you also have reason to pull back and say, what happened? What is it that went wrong in my spiritual life that I'm not progressing toward maturity like I ought to? Some of you have been Christians perhaps for almost your whole life, maybe since you were a little kid. And maybe you've never gotten to a place where your spiritual life has really moved beyond just warming a chair on Sunday morning. Maybe here and there you dabble in spirituality, but you never really push forward toward maturity, toward wanting to know and understand the word of God. Not merely through the words of other men, but also as you read it for yourself. You've never really pressed forward to maturity to develop your own prayer life, to develop the character of Jesus Christ and kindness and love toward other people, to develop the fruit of the spirit. And so you are a spiritual infant, even though you've known Jesus Christ for a long time. And that's one of the dangers we face, especially in a cultural context where it's not always popular to be a Christian. And I think one of the temptations we face is that we claim the name of Christ when it's convenient, when we're surrounded by people who are going to applaud us for it or at least going to affirm us or accept us. But then when we go out into the world, when we're around other friends, when we are in the general culture, we pull back and we don't claim the name of Christ just as strongly. And as we look at the book of Hebrews, the big concern that the author of Hebrews has is this uh, for his readers, that they seem to have stopped pushing forward toward maturity. And his concern is if you stop, if you stagnate and you stop moving forward, you really are going to move backwards. There's no such thing as stopping and stagnating indefinitely and staying in the same place. No matter how mature you may have been five years ago, if you don't continue to press forward to maturity, you will regress 
after the game was over last night, I was uh, watching a little bit after the game and I saw they interviewed Cyrus Gray and uh, our running back and he said something that struck me uh, in the course of that interview. They said, how does it feel to win this game? And maybe some of y'all saw that. He said, yeah, it feels pretty good. But he said, you know, success is in the past. We just got to keep producing. And to a certain extent, that's the attitude the author of Hebrews is going to take toward his readers. It's great that you did some wonderful things for other believers years past. It's great that you evidenced faith in Jesus Christ in years past. That's good. It's commendable. God doesn't forget it. But now you need to move forward because that's in the past. And the danger that I think he really warns them about in this passage is this. As they regress, as they stop maturing, the danger is that they will leave off their walk with Christ altogether. And for some of them, the danger is they will simply say, you know, it's too much work, too much pain, too much persecution, too much suffering to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to go back into my old way of life. And they deny Jesus Christ and turn to walk the other way. That's the warning throughout the entire book of Hebrews is that these are men and women that are tempted to go back into the pursuit of Judaism, the Old Testament law, because they're experiencing cultural pressure. The author says, don't do that. There are grave consequences for doing that. Now, Hebrews 6 is one of the most difficult passages in the book of Hebrews because it seems to be a warning about what's going to happen in that very case. If you, what he calls apostatize, fall away, turn away from Jesus Christ because you aren't pushing forward to maturity and you regress and you say, I'm going to leave off and go a different direction. What's going to happen? And he says there are grave consequences. And his challenge then is, To avoid that, you keep pushing forward toward maturity. All right, so let's look at our passage. First thing he says, very simply, is this. Press forward toward maturity. Look at verses 5, 11 to 6, 3 again. He says, about this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So he says, look, don't go back and question and doubt and keep having to get Christianity 101 under your belt before you mature. Look at it this way. When you were a child, you know, probably three, four, five, you learned certain basic facts about the world. You learned the alphabet, all right, A through Z. You learned basic addition, maybe basic subtraction. You learned basic facts about people and animals, what a mammal is, what a fish is, all of these things. And so if you're sitting in class, in a college class, and your neighbor leans over to you and goes, hey, what's two plus four, right? And he's got a pen ready. You think that's a little, right? Here he goes, what letter comes after G? Do people have tails or is that cats, right? You're going to think this is, this something's, again, something's gone wrong. Why does he have to go back and refresh things that he should have known years and years ago? What's supposed to happen is you build on those things, right? You learn addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. You learn how to do better math, calculus, and all of that. And you're supposed to build on these things 
not go back again and again to what ought to be basic. And what he's saying is that these believers, they're still like little children because they're going back and they're doubting and they're questioning things that ought to be fundamental. And the things he mentions in particular, he says, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. In other words, recognizing that the Jewish rituals never are going to be saving before God, that they can't earn their way toward righteousness with God. Instead, they need to They need to exercise faith in God because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's how they have eternal life. It says baptisms or washings and the laying on of hands. In other words, the Old Testament law had these ritual cleansings. They had to wash themselves and their hands at certain times in certain ways. And he says there's a distinction between that and Christian baptism, where you acknowledge that you believe in Jesus and you publicly profess that you've received the Holy Spirit. And in in the days of the early church, the Holy Spirit was often received through the laying on of hands. And so he says, don't go back again and question whether you need the Holy Spirit, whether you need baptism, or whether you need to go back to the Old Testament law. These are basic things. Resurrection and eternal judgment. In other words, just the basic fact that Jesus rose again and his resurrection promises our resurrection. And for those who don't believe in him, they're going to face a harsh judgment. He says, you don't need to go back to those things and question and doubt. Now, he's not saying that we never refresh the gospel message. That's not what he's saying. In fact, what he's saying is that once we have the basics of the gospel under our belt, then we're supposed to build on that, keep moving forward, keep pushing forward in maturity. Otherwise, you're, you're like a baby who keeps needing to drink milk. None of us see a 40-year-old guy with a bottle sitting in here drinking milk. When my oldest daughter was a baby, I had a friend that would often ask us early on when we had her, hey, can you come do this? Can you come do that? Can you come out in the evening and do this? And I would explain it. Well, now that I have a baby, we can't just leave her, you know, at the house. Uh, she needs care. And he'd, he'd sometimes jokingly go, just, just put a ham sandwich in her crib, man, and take off. Well, now that's obviously ridiculous because you can't leave her alone, but she can't eat a ham sandwich, Right? She can't stomach it. She can't chew it. She can't do anything with it. She needs milk. That's what babies need. And there's a time in your spiritual life when you need milk. And you need those basics. But he says there's also a time to build on those basics and progress forward. My guess is that there are some of you in here that you never really have nailed down the basics of your faith. If I were to say, where would you go in the scripture to show me that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. Where would you go? Some of you may not know. Where would you go to really verify and and, and confirm that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he's the son of God, the deity of Christ? Say, I've heard it, but I don't really understand it from the scriptures. So maybe you need to go back and you need to refresh these basics. That's why we have our essentials class. But once you've done that, then he says, progress forward and grow in maturity. Always keep moving forward. Now, when I was a kid, and maybe your dad was like this as well, uh, if we went on a road trip, and my dad did not like to stop, uh, once we got in that car, we were going to the destination. Dad was not about the journey. Dad was about the destination. We had to get there. And so uh, if you said, Dad, I got to go to the bathroom, he was much more likely to say, just hold it, right? It's just another 150 miles. You can make it. You go, Dad, we've already been going for three hours. You can make it, right? We're going to make it. If you said, probably my hair is on fire, he'd just, you know, say, hey, Daniel, spit on your brother's hair and we're going to keep going, right? He did not want to stop. 
As I've been a dad, I've seen this too. One of the most frustrating things for me is when we get going on a trip and we've got everything loaded up and we get about 20 minutes out of town and somebody forgot their fuzzy bunny or whatever it is, right? And we got to turn around and go back. That's regression. I want to get there. Now, in your spiritual life, you may never achieve the goal and you won't in this life of Christ-like perfection, but you keep pushing toward it. And that's why Paul, Philippians 3, says, look, I forget what's behind and I press forward to what's ahead. To being like Jesus Christ. Knowing him more intimately, more deeply, and growing in character. And so Hebrews says, what you need to do is you press on to maturity. But these believers, what they've done is they've stopped because they're afraid. They're afraid of persecution. They're afraid of social discomfort. They're afraid of the loss of prestige or maybe even their property. And so they've regressed. They've gone back to the beginning. He says, no, press forward in maturity. And he says, if you don't, there's some serious consequences for not pressing forward. Six, four through eight. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. All right, this is an incredibly difficult five verses of chapter six. And and the question is, what is the author talking about? Who are these people who they've experienced all of these good things and then they fall away or they apostatize, they turn away from Jesus and then they experience consequences? Who are the people? What are the consequences? What do they do? All right, and you've got really a few options as you look at this passage. When we were in chapter four, we laid out a few options for interpretation. If you were here, we're gonna do that this morning as well. How are we going to understand What Paul is saying here, if you don't press toward maturity, but instead you walk away from Jesus and you move the opposite direction and ultimately maybe that culminates with a rejection of Jesus Christ. What what is he talking about? Okay, let's uh, let's look at our options. All right, here's a few of them. First of all, I could be talking about, and this is as you read it on face value, one interpretation is these are genuine believers who then lose their salvation. Maybe these are people who've trusted in Jesus Christ And then they turn away, and as a result, they no longer have salvation. This would be called, uh, in theological terms, the Arminian viewpoint. That your salvation is something that can be lost, and in a sense, grace is granted to you as you continue in righteousness. Now, the problem with that view is this, that you've got so many passages in the New Testament that seem to indicate a couple of things. One, eternal life is a free gift. It's an irrevocable gift. In Romans 9, we read that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't take away or remove what he's given. And he's given it on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection, not on the basis of what I do. That's grace. Jesus died for me and rose again. If I believe in him, I have eternal life. Not if I believe in him and then I continue to do the right things. It's a gift. Romans 8, 35 to 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And it lists all of these things and it enlists everything in the heavens and on the earth and everything, which would include me. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And it's in a context talking about those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and have eternal life, about election. 
So I don't think understanding is this, a true believers who lost their salvation. I don't think that's the best way to understand it. Another option might be this. These are people who just think they're Christians, but they're not. In other words, he's saying some of you think you're Christians and you've experienced some of the benefits of knowing Jesus Christ, but you really don't have eternal life. And the argument would go, well, he says they've tasted the Holy Spirit or they've shared in it, but maybe they don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. They know a little bit of it. The problem with that is that the language used here in verses four through eight seems so clearly to be talking about true Christians. All right, it says they've been enlightened. That is used again, that term enlightened is used in Hebrews 10, 32, where it says, after you were enlightened, you suffered for Jesus. It seems to be in a context talking about they've been converted. They've trusted in Jesus. It says they have tasted the heavenly gift. That word taste doesn't typically mean uh, they just took a little bite. Right? It's used throughout the New Testament to refer to those who have tasted death, right? You don't just sample death. You either dive in or you don't, right? You're either dead or you're alive. If you taste death, that means you died, right? You tasted the heavenly gift, that means you received it. It came to you. Tasted is probably not even the best translation in English because we tend to think of that as, I just took a little nibble. But instead, what it means is I, I partook of it, of the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've partaken of the Holy Spirit. That's the same, again, same thing that's used throughout the passage, same word that partakers in 214, 3.1, 3.14, to talk about those who are full participants in Jesus Christ. They've participated in the Holy Spirit. They've partaken of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted, again, there's that word, the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, right? If these are not genuine believers, I'm not sure how the author would have said that they're Christians. He lists out so many different things that are unique to believers in Jesus Christ. They have the Holy Spirit. They've been enlightened. They understand the word of God, all of these things. So I don't think this is the best option. Not to mention throughout Hebrews, he says over and over again, brethren, your brethren, your beloved in Jesus Christ, all of these things. I don't think there's any indication that he's writing to a group within who are not Christians. The third option would be this. These are true Christians that need to hear a stern but hypothetical warning. In other words, the argument goes, this is just a hypothetical warning. This could never really happen, but he's saying, if it did, if you were to go so far as to apostatize, God would never bring you back. So it's hypothetical. Couldn't really happen, but you got to be careful of it anyway. That's actually the most popular, what we'd call the Calvinistic understanding of this passage is that maybe he's really warning the Christians, but this is just a hypothetical warning. The problem again that I have with that is a warning loses its force if it's hypothetical, right? For example, if I'm trying to get my daughter to stay in bed and not get out of bed at night, I've got a number of ways that I can do that, right? I mean, I suppose I could tie her to the bed. I suppose I could threaten discipline if she gets out. There's a number of things. One thing I guess I could do is I could say, you know, if you get out of bed, the boogeyman's going to get you. He lives in your closet. He's eight feet tall and he's going to pound you. Now, it's not true, right? But hypothetically speaking, I could warn her about it. Now, the problem is twofold. One, I'm being dishonest with her. It's not really going to happen. Secondly, eventually she's going to figure that out, right? She's going to try it. And when no boogeyman gets her, everything I've said just kind of loses its force. That's the problem in my view with saying it's a hypothetical warning about something that can't happen. As they press toward maturity, they're going to figure out, oh, God really won't revoke his salvation for me. And so they're going to understand this, this warning really holds no force. 
All right, so here's what I happen to think is going on. There's one other option, and it's this. I think these are true Christians who face stern judgment, but not loss of salvation. In other words, for those who are Christians, who are believers in Jesus Christ, who then walk away because they fail to continue in maturity and they leave off that quest and they turn the other direction, there is stern judgment for genuine believers. All right, that judgment doesn't come in the form of loss of salvation, but it comes in many other forms. Let me walk through just a few for you. A few consequences might be this, loss of eternal reward. If you've got a Bible for a second, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So we've got just a minute to do this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Keep your finger in Hebrews. Don't want to lose Hebrews. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3.10, I'm going to read through verse 15. Paul writes this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it and be, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I think that's part of what Hebrews is talking about here is that there are men and women that will get to the judgment seat of Christ and they are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. But what they've built on the foundation of Christ is wood, hay, straw, stubble. They have not built appropriately on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so everything they've invested their life in burns up. It says they're saved, but they don't receive a reward. I think that loss of reward is one of those consequences in eternity. Loss of the right to reign in Jesus' kingdom. Luke chapter 19, 11 to 27, Jesus tells a parable about three guys, a master goes away and he gives these guys some money to take care of. One guy gets 10 minas, one guy gets five, and one guy gets one. Right? The guy with 10, he invests it and he doubles it. The guy with five invests it and doubles it. To both of those guys, Jesus says, well done, you get to reign over 10 cities. You get to reign over five cities. And the guy that has the one goes and he just, he buries it in the ground. Doesn't tell anybody about it. He hides it because he's afraid. Jesus comes and says, now take that away and give it to this guy over here. You don't get that opportunity to reign over these cities because you weren't faithful with the resources you've been given. I think when Jesus establishes his kingdom, there will be believers in Jesus Christ who are given authority to reign alongside of him and there will be those that will not. Although they'll be there and a part of his kingdom, Jesus makes it very clear But those who are faithful, those who continue to press toward maturity have this right to reign alongside him in his kingdom. Loss of fellowship with God. 1 John 1.6 talks about how we can, uh, if we want to have fellowship with God, we need to continue to confess our sins. We need to continue to acknowledge them and receive forgiveness or we experience distance between us and God. I think that's also part of what Hebrews 6 is saying. In this day and age, it's not that we lose our salvation, but on an ongoing basis, we can lose fellowship, the close intimacy we would have otherwise with God. All right, and then lastly, I think temporal discipline or death. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about a man who's having a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. All right, and Paul says uh, that's forbidden. 
Not even the pagans practice that. And so this guy, I've turned him over. He says, I've turned him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul may be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, he's going to experience up to death, the kind of physical discipline that leads to death. And God will inflict that upon him because he refuses to repent and he is ongoing in his sin so that his soul may be saved. And I think that Hebrews 6 is talking about that as well. I think he's saying that there are men and women that they reach a point where they make a decisive commitment that I'm not going to follow Jesus Christ. They harden their hearts. And at that point, it's not that God revokes the gift that he's given, but there are other consequences. And I think if you continue to run and you run and you run, you reach a point where I think God says, because as Hebrews says, you're crucifying the son of God, holding him up to contempt. In other words, open shame. God says, I'm not going to allow you to do that anymore. So they can't be brought back to a place of repentance because repentance requires what? The Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And again, it's not that God removes the Holy Spirit, but I think he finally says, you know, I'm not going to continue to pound and convict and press. If you want to run away that much, then run away. But again, he doesn't revoke the gift he's already given of eternal life. Uh, Years ago, when Shannon and I lived in an apartment complex in Dallas, I was downstairs one afternoon and I ran across a cat in the parking lot. And uh, for whatever reason, at that moment, my heart was soft and I decided to take this cat into my own apartment. I asked the apartment management if anybody owned the cat. They said, no, the cat's been living out there for a week. Uh, We just kind of feed it, didn't have a collar. So I picked up the cat, I took it inside and um, turns out that that was just one of the biggest mistakes of my life. Uh, The cat was uh, angry, mean, Uh, bit me, scratched me. We had another cat. For whatever reason, we had two of these things in our house. And uh, they would fight all the time. And this cat was just just evil to the core of its very soul. And so uh, one day uh, I was decided I needed to go get this cat to the vet and so uh, it can get shot so it doesn't infect us with something nasty. So uh, I picked up the cat and I'm trying to help it out, right? Take it to the vet, get it some shots, take care of it, go down into the parking lot and I cannot get this cat into the little cat box, right? It won't go in. I keep trying to push it in. It keeps coming back out. It's scratching me all over the place, runs away chase the thing down. I pick it up. I try to put it in. It does the same thing, right? I I look like I've been in some kind of an awful mauling, right? I'm just covered with scratches. I try to put it in. This happens three or four times. Finally, about the third time, I manage to get the cat. I shove it in there. I close the door. I stick it in, in the car and we go. But I will tell you this. My temptation after about the third time was to say, see you, cat, right? Live your life. If you really want to go away that badly, go away. And there would have hit a point where I would have done that. And I think what Hebrews 6 is telling us is that there can come a point if we continue to walk away from God, even as believers, where our hearts become hardened to the point that we don't want to repent, we don't want to return back to him. And God finally says, all right, have it your way, but you need to know there's significant consequences, possibly, and we'll see this in Hebrews 10, even leading up to death. And one of the things we tend to think, we tend to think that death is the worst thing that could happen to a person. The reality is sometimes God may choose to cut short a life out of mercy so that you don't incur more and more judgment by continuing to hold up the Son of God to open shame. He says, look, ground that drinks in the rain, that receives it and grows a crop and is productive, God blesses that. Ground that doesn't, that bears thorns and thistles and all kinds of icky stuff, it comes near to being cursed. 
Doesn't mean God revokes the gift, but God burns over the ground, like 1 Corinthians 3 said, and everything you work toward, all those thorns and thistles, all that stuff that you thought was important besides following Jesus, burns up. So I think what he's saying is there's genuine consequences for those who would fail to press on to maturity, but then would turn and want to run their own way and deny Jesus Christ. The good news, though, is this, that faithfulness has rewards. Verses 9 through 12 says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, he goes on to encourage them. He says, look, even though you're sluggish right now, even though you're not walking with God right now, like I want you to, and you're not pressing forward, I know that the spirit lives in you. And I know that better things await because I've seen in your life, the evidence of the spirit. And God remembers that. And he says, now press on so that you can have the full assurance of hope as you are walking closely with Jesus Christ, as you're seeking maturity, your subjective feeling that you know God and that you have eternal life, that will increase. It's not that you're, eternal, you're eternally any more secure. Eternal security is an objective fact, something given by God through Jesus Christ alone. But your subjective assurance, yeah, as you're walking closely with God, that is naturally going to increase. Because you feel the Spirit's presence. You're listening to the Holy Spirit. He says, so continue, continue. That you may have assurance that you'll inherit not only eternal life, but all of the promises that God wants you to inherit. The rewards, the opportunity to reign with him, the opportunity to know him deeply and to avoid his temporal judgment on your life. So he says, faithfulness has its rewards. And faithfulness is hard. Faithfulness requires delayed gratification. It's a concept that we're not really all that good at in our culture. When we have a day and age of reality TV shows where you can get famous instantly for really doing nothing important, right? It's hard to imagine being in a context where reward actually requires faithfulness and diligence and perseverance. Um, A few weeks ago for a sermon, I was reading a study that had come out in which this researcher had said more and more young people are embracing the concept of what he called serial marriage. You have a partner for a few years, and then when you get tired of that one, you move on to the next one and the next one and a different one at every stage of your adult life. And I think the reason for that is because we're not familiar with the concept that there's a great reward for being faithful to one person for your whole life. There's an intimacy and a depth of relationship and a stability and a love that's much deeper than you can know if you just move on because your needs are not instantly satisfied. Uh, If we don't like a job after six months, we move on to the next one. We don't like a church, we move on to the next one. If we get tired of walking with Jesus and it's hard, we say, "Mm, I'm going to pull back. I'm going to stop the quest for maturity. And what this author says is, no, press on. Faithfulness and maturity have their rewards. And that when we stand before Jesus Christ, We have the opportunity to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You reign over 10 cities. You reign over five cities. Enter into the fullness of the rest that I have intended for you. So he says, press forward into maturity. And yes, following Jesus sometimes brings its challenges. But in the scope of eternity, it's 
the best thing you can invest your life in. So I want to ask you guys a question then. Are you pressing toward maturity or are you sliding back toward apostasy? Again, our author really doesn't give us, it doesn't give us a middle ground, right? Either you're continuing to know Jesus deeper through prayer, through real community with other believers, through understanding and studying the word of God, through practicing the fruit of the spirit and growing in them, or you're regressing. If you think you're stagnating, the reality is you're, you're regressing. You're sliding back away from Jesus Christ. So as you evaluate your life, really take a spiritual inventory of your life. Are you moving forward toward maturity or are you regressing? And if you find that you're not actively pressing toward maturity, the challenge of this passage for you this morning is begin that process. Maybe something small. Begin to develop your prayer life. Begin to develop your understanding of the word. Join a small group where people can help you with that. Make a commitment to walk with Jesus Christ and press forward toward maturity. It may be that there's some of you in here this morning that you've never yet begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. So maturity isn't an option for you yet. First thing you need to know is you do need to know the basic understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That eternal life only comes through believing in Jesus Christ, that God's only son died for your sins in your place, rose again to defeat death and sin. And if you exercise trust in him alone, you can have eternal life. And then you begin to grow in maturity. And that's what Hebrews is challenging us to do this morning. Are you pressing toward maturity or are you sliding back the other direction? Would you guys pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. Lord, this is a challenging and heavy passage this morning. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not the most fun passage, Lord, but we know it's a necessary passage because we're often tempted just simply to stagnate and often we regress. And Lord, we pray, as the author says, that you, you would permit us to press forward toward maturity. We know we can't do it apart from the work of the Spirit in our lives. We pray, soften our hearts. Make us faithful. Lord, let us not be old men and women who are spiritually infants still needing milk. But Lord, instead, allow us to grow to a place of depth where our senses are trained to discern from right and wrong, where we understand your truth and who you are and what you want from us, and we seek to obey it. Father, I pray if there are any in here this morning that don't know Jesus, that you would give them an opportunity to believe in him, and I pray that they would take the opportunity today Lord, forgive us for the times that we have sought our own comfort more than your glory. Lord, we pray be with us now in the things you're calling us to do this week. Let us be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. See you all next week.